Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Social Founder Stories, the podcast for everyone interested in inspirational stories about charities and social enterprises. I'm your host, Caroline Deal, and I'm the founder of two charities, the Media Trust and Together TV. I well know the joys and challenges of being a social founder. Social founder stories are about the amazing people who make social change happen. People who use their passions, skills, and entrepreneurial drive to make a difference and to make our world a better place. You'll hear about what makes social founders tick, how they create impact, what they struggle with and how they overcome their challenges, or not in some cases. Social Founder Stories is brought to you in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. So, Sir Tim Schmidt, you are... A knight of the realm. You. I have to correct you immediately. You're giving me a German thing. I'm a Schmidt, not a Schmidt. And I always thought you were Schmidt. How funny. When were you knighted? I've been knighted twice. I was Dutch. I, I've had a Dutch passport all my life because my father's Dutch, my mother's English. Uh-huh. And I had started becoming English when they offered me an honorary knighthood, which I accepted. So I, I had a, a nice ceremony for that. I chose, actually, to have the ceremony in Cornwall. Because I had a choice of going up to Buckingham Palace or having it done by the Lord Lieutenant of Cornwall, who was actually a really close personal friend, the late Lady Mary Holborough. So he had a really good sort of knees up, which, of course, you wouldn't get at the palace. And then my English nationality came through, and by surprise, I got a letter saying, we now notice you're one of us. So you've you've got to actually become substantial. So they made me a substantiated knight. <laughs> and it was actually funny because I went up to Buckingham Palace and His Royal Highness Prince Charles was doing the, the thing. And I came up to be dib-dib-dob-dobbed. And they turned around to the velvet cushion and there was nothing on the velvet cushion to give me because they'd forgotten they'd given me all of that gear the previous time. That's hilarious. And, and Prince Charles had said, uh, this has never happened to me before. And I said, if it's any consolation, it hasn't happened to me either. Oh. <laughs> so you're Sir Sir Tim Smith. I'm Sir Sir, sir yeah. With the, double, with the double thing. Tell us a little bit about you. So, so Holland, did you actually live in Holland ever? Well, I was born there, which is uh-huh. sort of like a good start. So I lived there for on and off for about uh, the first six years of my life. I, I would vacillate between, if you like, a blue-collar background in Holland and then a stately home in the north of England because my mum was rather posh and... They had a kind of big pile that was haunted by dozens of ghosts that my granny would talk to. And it was called Hartford Hall, and it's in the list of most haunted buildings in Britain. So it was a really weird thing, having uh, this mixture of, of, of different sort of social values and norms, which I think shaped what my life would turn into, because I, I felt strangely at home in both, but I wasn't that fond of the British upper-class things. I found it... I found it strangely loveless. Mm. Not that my granny wasn't fond of me or anything. It, I don't mean it quite so literally. It's just that it's as if property meant more than relationships in a sort of way. 
I'm being clumsy about it, and I don't wish to be hurtful to anybody. It's just that there is something about the way the world looks when you've got, um, if you like, some kind of establishment background, which has always made me feel quite rebellious in Britain because I, I can do cricket, I can speak about rugby and the stock exchange, and I've yeah. been to all the knobby places, and I sound like a knob... Um, in, in, in every sense of the word <laughs> and yet at the same time I look at an awful lot of my contemporaries who've had the same public school university background with privilege and I I often feel sad that because the way it's all set up we've as a country provided ourselves with no incentive for change because those that are in control or in power see their background as being normal and it's not very normal, really. Mm. It isn't very normal. I get really irritated, though, by people wearing their charitable aspiration like a badge of some kind of virtue. Mm-hmm. I've met more incompetent, vain, naive people in the charity sector than I've even met in business. Mm. I, I, I think that one of the things that the charity sector has to rid itself of is the sense that somehow allowances have to be made for the fact that you're doing something good. Because actually an awful lot of charities that I know spend most of their time raising the funds to pay the staff to do the stuff. It's as if there ought to be courses for people in how to project manage stuff, how to project manage their time. Definitely. Because because you you find you end up with a meetings culture and a filling in forms culture for grants from various places, which has its own form of death associated with it. And I think I'm much more comfortable with profits for a purpose. I think there are certain things which are charitable in the sense that it is something that the state cannot or will not do. Mm-hmm. It is a condition. It, it is dealing with circumstances which are not capable of yielding a revenue stream in a normal way, and those perhaps should be classified in a different way to things which are have actually got a commercial or potential commercial stream to keep them going. And I think that one of the dangers of the way we've run our politics in this country has been that we have seen charities and NGOs or people interested in climate change as being very lazily badged as being left, anything from hard left to gentle liberal socialist. And an awful lot of these issues should just be humane, you know, humanist in some way. And I think we need to look at that. I think there are also far too many charities as well. I was wondering if you were going to say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember being at a do in uh, Oxfordshire and there was a shocking number of charities that were dedicated to prisoner rehabilitation or whatever. You suddenly thought, blimey, you know. And then when you look up and find the amount of people who have started charities, understandably because the emotional draw of wanting to demonstrate your love for somebody who died from a particular disease often makes people want to set up a charity to deal with this disease. But you've got all of these administrators all over the place dealing with kidney disease or liver disease or thyroid, whatever it is. And I think it actually diffuses the energy. I've come across a lot of founders of small charities that, again, particularly those ones that are in the name of somebody, who just don't want the small amount of money that they have or that they think they can raise to be gobbled up in the chief executive salary or the administrator's costs or mm. the rent in the office. And they, they want to just make sure that that money is going directly to the cause. Or they feel that the large organisation is not really addressing the micro issue that, that they have. So what would you say to somebody like that? Okay, 
This is a generalization from which there will be exceptions. I think there is a tremendous confusion between I want to deal with this problem, yeah? Let us talk about, say, homeless people or refugees or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And asking the question, what would be the most effective way of dealing with this problem? Yeah. Surely the question is, shouldn't we be raising the money for the person that can actually do that job and stop putting this pattern of the amount you pay is equivalent to your moral compass? I find that so, so confused because I think if you want to sort a problem, you want the best people to be sorting the problem. If you haven't got the money and you haven't got the money, fine, then you have to compromise. But there is a very puritanical streak in that whole sentence I want to see it all going to the front line. It's a bit like, let's fire all the administrators in the hospital service. We need more doctors and nurses. Yeah. Oh, really? Huh. Have you spent a lot of time with doctors and nurses? Yeah. A lot of them are brilliant with patients but can't tie their own shoelaces. Yeah. And you need to actually have administrators, great administrators, to do some stuff. And what we've done is we've demonized administration and pretended that action at the front line is the thing that makes all the difference. Well... Yes, but to get that action on the front line, as I know from doing Eden, you need brilliant people who've got the ability to conduct. You know, I, I love that film, uh, uh, The Sword in the Stone, the Disney film, where, where, where it's one of my favourite films, where there's a scene <laughs> where Merlin goes into the really filthy uh, underground kitchen at the castle um, and he wants to take the wart, the future King Arthur, uh, out for a bit of training but the wart has been told he has to do all the cleaning up from the feast the night before. And Merlin just waves his wand and all of the things start dancing in the air and being washed and, you know, by brushes that are just magic. And being so, very soon they're a little ping, ping, ping. Which is it's what all... we'd all love, running the charities and social yeah. enterprises that we have. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about you then. Come on, how did, you, how did Eden start? Well, there's obviously the Heligan Gardens as well. I, I can't talk about Eden without starting with Heligan on the grounds that I had no interest in plants whatsoever. I mean, really, I didn't. I, I, I would go for a picnic to a nice garden. If you want to be factually accurate, yeah. I... I I studied archaeology and anthropology at university. I'd played the piano all my life, but for myself, I had never no intention of playing for a public, nor yet did I actually want to play any music by anybody else. It was my music for me. And at university, I was skint, and my friend Charlie Scarbeck and I uh, decided we'd form a band doing kind of cover, cover songs to earn money at the May Balls. So that's what we ended up doing. And we built a big PA system, and then the punk boom came, and most of the punk bands didn't have PAs, so we rented our PA for far more than we ever got for playing. But That's yeah. interesting that actually Eden then ends up as a, effectively a concert venue as well, uh, as a place for homelessness and refugees. You spotted so, that. So it's probably helped you all the way through. And let's go back even further, actually. You know, you were talking about that feeling that you had in, in the pile, as you call it, in the stately home that, that your mother had, your granny had. Yeah, my mum's place. When you were really young, did you feel... Was there anything in you that thought, one day I might change the world, or one day I might make a difference, or did you...? No, not at all. My, my excitements were going down with a, a jam jar to try and catch water boatmen in the pond. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I can still get excited seeing ponds for that. I would spend hours and hours lifting big stones that were in the, the, the garden in the hope that I'd find a toad underneath. Lovely. And sometimes you'd get the ultimate bonus of a little mouse or something. And I loved... My memories are all of uh, 
scrumping strawberries and getting admonished for it and uh, um, stealing eggs. I, I loved I loved going out to the chicken runs and I loved that feeling of putting your hand underneath a laying hen and feeling this warm egg and then withdrawing it. So I've, I've long had a very romantic connection to the smell of straw and hay and fresh earth with crushed fern, essence of crushed fern behind it from lifting rocks. Lovely. And that kind of soupy... Swampy <laughs> water smell that you get right on the banks of a pond as you're getting water boating, and smell is just fantastically important for me. And I can evoke memories just like that with a smell. I, I wasn't really interested in gardening, but I liked going into the garden. But I was actually hunting for animals or, yeah. or, or trying to catch butterflies or all of that sort of stuff. Let's go forward again. I became deputy county archaeologist for the Bose Museum at Barnard Castle which is amazing. I never knew that either. Oh, God, it was was the best job I could ever have invented. It was the hot summer of 1976 when the archaeology, the known archaeology of Durham, increased by over 30% because of all the crop marks that started to come up all over the Durham. So I I spent my time just in joyous discovery because I had a, a, a very good boss... And he would host on Fridays, people would come in, anything that had been found in Durham that you wanted identified, you came to the Bose Museum, and it was the Friday thing. It was like living the Antiques Roadshow. You didn't, never knew what was yeah. going to happen. It was just marvellous. marvellous. And then other times we'd go up in light aircraft taking photographs rather uh-huh. amateurishly of um, crop marks that were evolving. It was just bliss, except it was so badly paid. It was just appallingly paid. So eventually Charlie, who'd become a child psychologist, and I said, should we take a punt on going to London? Because most surely the roads of London are paved with gold. And so we moved to London uh, on a sort of whim, but Charlie's mum had a flat in Lexham Gardens in um, Kensington. So we built a little studio there Uh in a back room, and away we went, songwriting. And that's what we did, and we were stunningly unsuccessful for a while, and unemployed. Uh, And then... One day I was playing football on Clapham Common up near the Windmill Pub and it was a place where people who were in the creative arts would gather at a certain time and use big teams. It was very, very casual. And I just happened to kick this man very hard during a match <laughs> and someone said, do you know who you've kicked? And it happened to be Pat Stapley who was the one of the main sound engineers at Abbey Road Studios. So I quickly brushed him down and uh, when, I, when I knew who he was yes. we would become fast friends after that but he was able to use Abbey Road Studios for free if it was, wasn't booked and that actually launched us on our career because we we were able to use the studios for nothing and then we got I think five record deals back to back so we were able we didn't make have hits but we were able to pay little bits to the studio and the studio started to trust us as being honourable people for actually giving them a copy of the contract and so on and then we had a monumental piece of luck. You know, there's no other word for it. My, my life is a bit like that, the serendipitous. But my firstborn son, Alex, had just got to the age where we could leave him with a babysitter. And my ex and I went out for dinner and came back. And it was my sister-in-law who was babysitting, and she'd asked whether she could bring a friend. Her friend turned out to be an opera singer who gave me her card. I thought I would never use an opera singer. But, of course, you've got to remember this is pre this is pre-mobile phones. And the following day we were in Abbey Road and the singer we were going to be working with had fallen ill. And the, I had five names of five other singers and they were just out. <laughs> so I phoned the lady who gave me the card the night before. And this is absolutely true. Within weeks we had our first 
number one in Europe. And incredible. It, it, well, it was incredible, and it just went... What was it called, Tim? Uh, it was called Midnight Blue, and it became the biggest selling record in French history until Live Aid's They Know It's Christmas. And we then became like rock stars. What's so interesting, knowing a little bit, but not much, a little bit about what you then went on to do is already you're thinking laterally, you're taking advantage of the network, your contacts, any, anybody that comes up to you, even if you think, never am I going to be in touch with an opera singer or, yeah. or you know, if you've kicked them in the shins or whatever, you're, you're grabbing that moment. And presumably that, that has held you in good stead all the way through. It, it has. I mean, I, there are two aspects to that, what you just said. The first is I learned early uh, by doing that because my ex was unbelievably moral. And she hated the music industry because it really wasn't very moral and you couldn't trust anybody. And she insisted that everything we did was scrupulous mm -hmm. uh, because she was sort of managing you know, the administration of it. So every musician that played for me for nothing would get a copy of the actual contract we had signed so they could see that when we paid them, it was for real. And every nice. royalty statement we got, she insisted on posting them to all the people uh -huh. so that... Well, the the effect of that is if you are completely to be trusted, it's an old-fashioned concept, your good name. But actually, I know an awful lot of people, many of them now are quite famous, but if the world dropped out for them completely, there wouldn't be many people to catch them mm. because of what they've done. And I think there is something really good about being able to go to sleep at night knowing that there is nobody on the planet who can say you have um, gulled them in any way. Um, so that was the, that was the yeah. first thing. So I, I think, I would say trust is probably the greatest. When people, I get to innovation con conferences and I said, just be trustworthy. Forget being innovative in a lot of other areas. But if you are trustworthy, people will delight in you being there. Yeah, yeah. Be kind. Yeah. But I had a great advantage, which could be considered a disadvantage. But my dad being in the airlines, it meant that we were traveling all over the world. And I had a choice wherever I was as a youngster did I go along to all these smart cocktail parties or did I just stay at home with the nanny or the armor or whatever? Mm -hmm. And I decided I, I, I liked, I was interested in people. And so I, from the age of eight, I re started reading the Times cover to cover <laughs> because I knew there was nothing more embarrassing than sitting down next to someone and not even knowing what country they came from or if I did, where was it, what they do. So I became like a living sponge. So curiosity, whether it's curiosity to see what's under the stone uh, uh, yeah. or under the hen. But by 10 or, years old, I could... Or I could in the times. Yeah, by 10 years old, I could tell you the capital city of every single country in the world and I could tell you where it was and I could draw a map of the world. Huh. Um, and I, I, I was a stamp collector too and everybody, everybody thinks, ooh, how nerdy is that? And then I tell them how I collected stamps and they look at me as so I'm a bit dangerous because I... I was never very keen on getting the whole series of anything because actually I like to fantasize about the ones I didn't have. <laughs> and it, it, it's funny, my life has always been like that. I, I, I love mystery. I can't wait to I can't wait to get to the end of your founder journey and find out what you're doing now. But let's go back to, so you're in the middle of this amazing, buzzy rock industry getting number, a number one in well, London. Several, several. And then what happened? What, well, how did you end up doing well, the gardens? Well, if I was to describe just in a sentence, I, I, I fell out of love with the music industry. I changed my life at 33. <laughs> and I went to Cornwall mm -hmm. on holiday. It rained. I went into an estate agent to escape the rain. I saw a house for sale. 40 minutes, an hour later, uh, we'd agreed to buy it. How wonderful. 
And so we moved to Cornwall. I then spent all the money I'd made in the music industry buying the house and then doing up a barn. And then I was genuinely really close to having absolutely nothing. And you had three small kids. I had three small kids. And I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And then two rather extraordinary things happened. I had made a record 12 years before or something for fun. We had a studio in Farnham and we had a, a, a friend with a banjo and we played a record that was somewhat reminiscent of In the Summertime by Mungo Jerry. Um, but it was actually, Great song. But it was a joke song <laughs> about fishing uh-huh. and it was full of fish puns, you know, um, and it had this rousing chorus, go fishing, go fishing, just you and me all by our own, and blah, 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 blah. And anyway, absolutely skin. I was in a dentist's, and I've never seen a copy of the stage in a dentist's, but there it was, and I opened it up, and the page opened up with a picture of Jack Charlton, um, and it was an announcement that Jack Charlton was about to make this television series called Go Fishing. <laughs> and... I couldn't help myself. I just sent a cassette of the Go Fishing to the the people making the programme and they got straight back and said, it's perfect, it's what we've been waiting for. And, by the way, would you like to do all the other music on the thing? And they said, we'll pay two and a half. I thought they were going to offer me 250 quid. I would have accepted that. I got a cheque for two and a half thousand. Which in those days was a lot of money. And again, Tim, this is this thing of you acting on instinct, very entrepreneurial, just kind of... Going with the flow. Yeah. You know, All I, the I, way through. That's I, a pattern, whether it's sending off the cassette to, to the, the fishing programme or whether it's buying the house on an impulse or moving out of London on an impulse or whatever. But it's quite, yes. It's really it, interesting it, it, that you've it, grown what is effectively an empire with Eden, but the, your instinct is this, this thing to move fast. Yeah, I do move very fast. A, a lot of people find that disconcerting. Mm. And what's really weird is, is later in life, if I see a painting or something that I like, I just go, I'll get it. And I know why. I know why. It's because there are so many lovely things that in my youth I didn't grab by the throat. And there are certain things that are just commodities. And there are certain things that they're one-off. And I love one-off things. I mean, if you come to my house, people say, my God, what's this? What's this? And they've all got stories and when I start telling the stories, everybody just sits down and they just go, wow. So it's like a little museum in your house. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. the same in, in Eden. Have you got yeah, lots yeah, of stuff? Yeah, but my house, my house has got things like, I was, three years ago, I was in the desert near Palm Springs, you know, the Joshua Tree Desert, and I found a mineral shack. And I went in to get a glass of water because it was really hot and we were looking at the marvellous Joshua trees around there because I was interested in plants by then. Mm. And I... As my eyes adjusted from the bright sunlight, I could see there was something right down the far end. It was, it was like a container. And I went to the bottom, and in this cabinet was this marvellous thing. And I said, is that what I think it is? And the guy in the shop said, depends what you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a meteorite. No. And I bought this meteorite, which is really dumb, because the following day I was going to LAX to fly back to England. And... It was really funny because I put it in my suitcase and I got to LAX and I checked it in 
I went in, and then suddenly it was an all-points call at the airport with, with Tim Smith come to so-and-so, and they took me into a security room because as it had gone through the machine, it just got bonkers. <laughs> Crazy metal. And How I'll big was what, it? What size, roughly? Uh, it was about the size of a 10-pin bowling ball. That's huge, and yeah, as heavy and it, as and one it was of heavy. those as well. It was heavy. I had nothing else in the case. <laughs> we had to, yeah. um, and, but what, what is amazing about that meteorite is that wherever I go, I, 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 I take the meteorite to show people and when people are holding something and you tell them that it is older than planet Earth itself, you just see people go misty. You yeah. know, they just go, wow. Yeah. So let's go, let's go back. Yeah, exactly. There's so many stories to tell. So many oh, stories I'm in to Cornwall. To. I'm in Cornwall with no money, not knowing what I'm going to do with the rest of my yeah. life, even considering going back to university because I'd actually lost... I, I had no money. Um, and you got your two and a half thousand pounds. Yeah, well, yes, okay, I, yes, I did, but, but that, that, that didn't that, help. Really. That, while it was a nice stipend, it, it was <laughs> not going to last me for that long. And then a guy I'd met turned up with a white van with a trailer behind it, inside which it turned out was a pig, a really big black pig that was named Horace, although mm-hmm. we didn't know it at the time. And he said, look, uh, I need a home for Horace, and I know that you've got a garage which you're not using, and if we put a little fence across the front of it, Horace could be there. And it was funny, I was taken so by surprise, I didn't know how to say no. So I ended up with Horace, and then Horace was a very forceful personality. Your kids must have liked Horace. Oh, they did, they loved Horace. But Horace was very forceful, and he didn't like being lonely, so he would break out. I mean, immensely strong. He's a bore, you know, he'd just lift the fence up, and and then he pushed open the door of the kitchen and came in and warmed his ass on the arga <laughs> and we'd talk well he wouldn't talk i'd talk and we really liked each other but i then discovered he was lonely so we found doris and doris and horace would eventually have babies and them having babies one november night in 1990 would change my life because i, I was just the most joyous thing seeing baby piglets in dense hay under a heat lamp at two o'clock in the morning with horizontal snow outside it was biblical and I decided that I wanted to have a rare breed park. That was what I was being signalled to do. And that's how this all began, because I, I, I knew of some land, and I went to speak to a guy who had some land, and I got there, and he gave me a very hot cup of coffee and told me instantly I couldn't have the land. So I now had to make small talk, and I had told him a bit about my life, and he then uttered the immortal words, mm. I have need of an archaeologist. No. Yeah. So the following day, he'd inherited this estate, which is the estate called Heligan now, and he didn't have any money and didn't know what to do with it and wondered whether I could have some ideas. So we went round, and the following day, again, instinctively, I knew I loved it. The moment I saw it, it was like Sleeping Beauty, and it wasn't about the plants. I mean, there were amazing plants, but they were all covered by five metres of bramble. And so it was really like the secret garden as oh, well. Oh, yeah, better than the secret yeah. garden, better. I mean, it yeah. was amazing. And eventually I came to a wall, which, just like the secret garden, had a... A, a, a green door with flaking paint and rusty hinges, which is slightly ajar. Pushed my way in, and I, I, I fell in love. And I decided, yeah. I decided there and then that I wanted to restore this place. And so my, again, the impulse. Yeah, I was, I was I love absolutely it. instant. Yeah. And it, I, went back, just... I went back to the farm, mm. and there was a guy doing a bit of building for me. And I told him about the story. He said, "I've always wanted an adventure." He said, "Can I join you?" And that was John Nelson. Uh, so I said, "Yeah," and we proceeded to have. The most marvellous time. I mean, we it was the very opposite of being in the National Trust. The National Trust had once looked at it and said, no, no, it's, not, it's beyond salvation. And a few people had looked at it with the viewpoint of stealing some of the plants from there because they were very mature. 
But we got in there and we didn't know how to cost it or anything, so we just started work. Yeah. And we became addicted, so we just continued. Is the film still available, the documentary? Because I loved it so much. Yeah, the film is still available. It's all good shots. Um, it won Documentary of the Year in yeah. 1996. It was, it was a great film, because it really did combine the magic of that wonderful Secret Garden film with, with the adventure that you, yeah. you personally were taking, and you and John. I'm going to see if we can put a link to the film on yeah, the website. Good. That'd be good. It was, but it was such fun. Everything yeah. I'd learned. And this is one of the things I say to youngsters. I mentor about 15, 17 younger people. I also do some older people. But I, I say to I say to them, um, it isn't always about money. It really isn't always about money. Very often, doing something too small is the reason for your failure. Most people cannot be excited by the small. See how big you can make it. And strangely, the bigger it gets, the easier it starts to become. And why? Because there's a whole world outside of yours full of men and women who dreamt that they, in their youth that they were going to have a great adventure in their life who now have a bittersweet kernel of disappointment, gentle melancholy, about what they haven't done. If you can then create a stage on which all sorts of people can rekindle their excitement at doing something marvellous, there's not much you can't do. And I did it at Heligan. We ended up with, like, 100 volunteers and whatever, yeah. something that would have cost tens of millions to restore. We did it for about 450000 and we did it because all these people came, they volunteered, they loved it, they were so excited. And we'd sit in the old goat shed having tea from the tea urn, just talking about what... And we get excited about finding anything. And then I, I borrowed a metal detector and we metal detected the garden, which no one had ever done that in garden restoration before. And we found all the old plant name labels and washed them off with soft soapy water and then put uh, uh, the, the Indian ink would react with it. And there you were, you found all these plants and we started... To, come up with a philosophy to put it back as it had been mm. and then we, we very early on we discovered this wall on which the garden staff had written their names in 1914 and we started to wonder about that and then we realised uh, with a bit of research that over three quarters of them had died in World War yeah. One, yeah. and that became the complete driver for us to tell the story of the ordinary men and women who'd made these gardens great not the lords and ladies mm. and no one had done it no one had mm. ever done that before mm. And it's, it was a fantastic adventure and very moving too because if you start viewing a place like Heligan as uh, a stage where generation after generation had lived their lives and also I started to get a really deep respect which would shape me politically which mm -hmm. is that many of the technical advances that you saw in the boilers and in the way the glass houses were constructed were blue collar people really smart experimenting with how to do things you know like the pineapple pits that we found and then restored. Yeah. But it took me years to restore them because, of course, you think that you're looking at the ruins of something that was coherent as opposed to an experiment itself. So you were restoring all the walls when, in fact, two of them had been knocked down, yeah. you know, 200 years previously for not working. Do you think there's another film to be made about Heligan now, actually, looking back on it? Yeah, possibly. Possibly there is, actually. Um, yeah. But the thing... But what would make it current... Is since Heligan, an awful lot of people have taken on, and I don't mean this critically, have taken on the clothes of Heligan. I once said, and I meant it as a quip, that if you can't dream in it, you don't feel like getting drunk in it, and you're not inspired to make love in it, tarmac it. Lovely. And I said that because too much of Britain's worship of gardens is down to a kind of middle-class thing. It's a garden, it must be lovely. A bit like, it's a charity, it must be good. Mm. And actually, 
gardens at their best are the torturing of nature to human ends. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually what a garden is. You know, it's, it's not natural. You're trying to create a sense of the natural world as you appreciate it by bending it to your will. And even wild gardens have that tendency. So what, what I found myself thinking about a lot was, was romance and what made you feel as if you had an emotional response. It made you think or it made you joyous. Mm-hmm. Just walking up endless lengths of herbaceous border yeah it's quite nice but it's a bit like going around licorice all sorts what you've got it's it's about an emotional depth and most most gardens do not have it there are lots of gardens that are are pretty and i'd have a cup of tea and 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 say oh that's nice most gardens are just the plants i already know just ordered in a different way (laughs) i don't know where we're going with this story but I, i fell in love i got this gang together we weren't paying ourselves and then the documentary came out and then the public poured in because Stefan Bichatsky forgot to mention we weren't open to the public. <laughs> and did you have a feeling that you would set something up, that it was yours in some way, that you were a, a, already a founder, you were creating something? It never occurred to me I wasn't. To be honest, I, I, I always take ownership in my spirit of whatever I do because I can't energise myself unless I feel that. Mm-hmm. It's not that... It's just that I, 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 I can be a good team player and mentor people, but once I get involved, I want... I don't need to own it, but I need to have a creative control uh, or creative sign-off. Control's the wrong word because, actually, in most of my work, I'm dealing with people far cleverer than me, and I, I just want... To, I've got a good sense of whether things belong together and they're the same culture. Uh-huh. And it's the culture, really, that I, I see myself as leading... So at, at Heligan, we restored it by... We went to so many damned auctions buying slates and timber and, you know, troughs. And, you name it. I mean, we, we, but it was great fun yeah. because you came back, like, with swag, you know. <laughs> so, like, the meteorite, almost, that collecting. Yeah, yeah, Actually, yeah. even when you were a kid, you were collecting, weren't you? Whether it was I've the always, eggs I've or always the, liked, Yeah, I've always the, liked collecting. Or the newts. Or the, yeah. And then, the, and then, yeah, it's so interesting. There's a thread that goes all the way through your life. It's really, and we're only at the beginning, really, still with Heligan. Yeah, but, but, um, the, but the other thing, so, though, though, that is important in terms of people listening, now, one of the things I've always done all my life, which I advise other people to do, is when people... People go and they do MBAs and they come up with all sorts of slogans about it, you know, concentrate, focus. You know, I always say, focus? Does a golden eagle focus? No, it doesn't. It glides across the landscape and has a peripheral vision. It picks up motion. When it sees the motion, then it focuses. But so many people get obsessed by, I'm going to focus on what I'm doing, yeah. not realising that the real joy, the magic of creating things, comes from putting people... What it is, is, again, you're told... Um, you must do this, you must go to university, and there you'll meet the people you need to meet. Magic doesn't come from meeting the people you need to meet. It comes from meeting the people you didn't know you needed to meet, which is a really different thing. And you can only meet the people you didn't know you needed to meet by putting yourself in social jeopardy, by accepting things that you would otherwise not do. So from a very early age, once I got to Cornwall, I gave myself a working... 
a working principle, which is that I accept every third invitation I receive. Nice one. <laughs> it's not that I don't accept the first, yeah. but I always accept the third unless it clashes with a domestic regulation. However irrelevant it might seem to Especially you, if it's principle. irrelevant. Especially if it's irrelevant. The trouble with relevance is that you've already defined what is relevant to you. I love it. And that actually means that you have already put the blinkers on. Yeah. You know. So tell us some stories about what you've got out of those third in those third meetings, those third invitations. Oh, far too many to, 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 to dwell on. I'll give you a very good example. Um, I was asked to go and give a talk uh, in Hestercoon Gardens, which were being restored, uh-huh. in a Nissan hut. And I was told proudly there'd be 50 people and a dog, and it's like 180 miles, and my... PA threatened resignation if I accepted it. <laughs> but I had to go, so I went and I talked. You had to go because it was the third invitation. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. So, so anyway, uh, a couple of months later, we're in Plymouth for uh, a meeting of the European commissioners who were going to decide on... The, at that time, there were fi- all the five western counties were bidding into a, a fund called ERDF 5B. Mm-hmm. Um, and the counties had basically carved up what each was going to get and we were in competition with something in Cornwall and people were worried that if we got it, the others wouldn't. Anyway, we gathered pretty soon we weren't going to get the money. Now, it's going to be the end of the Eden Project, which just wasn't going to happen. Um, and this old guy stood up and he said, um, my name's Humphrey Temperley. I am the chairman of Somerset County Council. And three months ago, I was in a Nissan hut in, outside Taunton and I saw this man speak. And that was you? In me, yeah. And it was quite obvious he had the wider West Country in his purview than the narrow confines of Cornwall, and we think that the Eden Project will be good for all of us. And I spoke to my colleagues, and we have agreed to drop one of our projects if our fellow counties will each drop one. So that speech in outside Taunton was worth £12.7 million. Amazing. That's a fantastic story. That's so great. So so real advice to anybody listening here, don't close doors, open don't, them. Don't close doors. Open the other thing to... is, the mm-hmm. other thing which is a byproduct of this, is, is most people, when they're dealing with focus and it's important, do the things that are important with the projects they're currently working on. They don't look in the mirror and ask themselves, how would you feel... If you approached yourself for help or collaboration and they only came to you at the moment they needed you. So you must, like a chess player, play a year, two years ahead, meet interesting people and bother to go and see them or buy them lunch or have a coffee when you don't need them. People are so crass. I, 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 I just weep, well, metaphorically, when I meet some people who just don't know the social graces. And I Good think that's, that's a key theme with, with funders, actually, that thing where you, oh. ignore, you, you get the money from somebody for your social enterprise or your charity and then you ignore them until you know, the next funding round yeah. comes around. Yeah. so easy to do, and Go I've probably and been guilty people. of that. Go and see people. Also, this will sound really crap. Good manners. Every year we do a big summer event. Where at all, Eden. At Eden, Eden, where, where people who've been helpful to us or people we work with or people we like, they come, about 600 people. And one year I just lost my temper... And so for the following year, I asked colleagues, I said, this is excruciatingly embarrassing, but I need to teach you what good manners are. And I want to teach you how to introduce people. (laughs) Are you not aware that most people are shy? (laughs) That when you introduce one person to another, A, remember their name, that's a good tip, 
B, give the person you're introducing them to two lines on what this person does. So if the shy person can't think of something interesting to say, they can immediately come back with, oh, that's very interesting. Just, it's basic, it's basic. But so many people don't know these things. It's not that they're bad people or, or, or anything. It's just that I have found that good manners and being trustworthy are just fundamental to your success. And it doesn't mean that you're being good-mannered to be creepy. It's actually really nice to make where you are feel good and agreeable. Mm. And people's behaviours are so different when you behave well. But it also ties in with your curiosity, because you're mm. curious about all sorts of people and all sorts of places. Yeah. So I'm going to whiz us ahead to how, the year Eden, 2025. how Eden happened. Because I also want to hear what you're doing now, because you're not day-to-day running Eden anymore, are you? That's for you to ask and me to answer in just a minute. Well, the Eden project began as an idea, very simple. Um, I, I often joke that, that people say, oh, Tim, you're so visionary, and I then reply saying, find me a 12-year-old that did not dream of building a Rapunzel tower or a castle or, you know, uh, mm. was influenced by Mad Ludwig in some way or built a dam or whatever, and I'll show you someone with arrested development. Everybody does. Mm. Everybody dreams of that stuff. The only difference in me and... Uh, the, the general population was that I, I had this idea that if you had a big dream to build a lost civilization in the crater of a volcano um, I, I had this vision in my head um, so I'm using the word vision rather a lot but I had this vision as a picture captured in my head that you would have seen which is of um, David Livingston yes. in a top hat discovering Victoria Falls and he's got this kind of expression of almost blank amazement um, and his mouth is just slightly open and I wanted to create a place that was so theatrical that even the biggest cynic in the world would just for a moment go, wow. Yeah. Um, and it was very plain. that the, the, It needed to be the creator of a volcano. We looked, we went to every pit um, we could find to find the perfect one, and it would take us a year and a half to find this particular pit. Um, and it was a long, longish journey, but the idea was pretty instant it was like a hit record do you know yeah. what I mean you just hear the first chorus yep that's great yeah. um, and the instinct was this was going to work and I met a guy called Jonathan Ball who was a local architect in Bude and he was very connected to the architectural establishment and he was charged with making the introductions to people who could be helpful. You always knew you wanted to do this in Cornwall, did you? Yeah, because you? I lived nearby. Yeah. So I didn't want to travel. Yeah. And I had retrofitted exactly why we needed to do it in Cornwall, because it has the big, the broadest flora of any place probably in the world, because mm-hmm. you go from moorland to mm-hmm. these subtropical valleys mm-hmm. that lead down to the rivers. And I was very happy to be in Cornwall, because I mean, Heligan was doing really well. Besides which, Heligan was going to have to fund it, because there, were, there are real weaknesses in the state funding in this country, which are that civil servants like the idea of innovation, but what they mean by innovation is that it's been done dozens of times before, but you're just rebranding it. Genuine innovation is, is a foreign territory, and it comes with the word risk, yeah. and you can get fired for having risk, and if you say no, uh, 99% of the time you would have been right. Yeah. So going back to me being a visionary, I think the most visionary thing I did was to believe we could have persuaded all those professional naysayers to just say yes. So I didn't know that you used the Heligan money to seed fund Eden. Yeah, we, we, sp- we had to buy the nursery because uh-huh. the Millennium Commission didn't understand that nature worked in seasons, not in terms of 
year budgets. Um, so we were going to be a year late if we hadn't bought it. So we spent about £700,000, which is a lot of money for us. I mean, a lot. So if, that's if, a huge financial risk. Yeah. So you're effectively borrowing from Heligan. Or yeah. How did you, how did you structure it? Well, 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 borrowing, uh, the way it works is you borrow, and then if it doesn't go ahead, you've lost it. Yeah, that's, that's what you did. You didn't, you it, didn't do a joint venture or anything? No, 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 we didn't. I, it was always the intention that it should become a charitable uh-huh. project. The truth is, I would much rather it had been private... If only because the the, the, the skills of cat herding, um, you know, getting yeah. getting people organised and, and having opinions different to your own yeah. uh, is is tricky. Yeah, I was um, going to ask you and, about that. And, but we knew that we could not apply for the sort of level of money we needed, uh, or to the lottery if it was private. Yeah, and um, there w- and there was not the commercial investment around for that sort of thing. You, could you could you have could you have created business case for commercial investment? No. No, but this is because business cases and the state's business cases are wrong. Eden cost in total about £140 million, something like that, £145 million. Pounds. Over how long? Two years, two, two and a half years. Yeah, cool. We built That's really... Quick. Once we <laughs> decided we worked yeah. really fast and yeah. we had fantastic constructors in uh, the McAlpine boys mm-hmm. and girls. Um, and Cullen McAlpine was a great inspiration to me because he he was the boss of Sir Robert McAlpine and we asked him whether he'd join our board because I felt, a bit like when I was working at Abbey Road, if I had the constructor really close so they could see the money, they could see every contract, they could, whatever, mm-hmm. they could then take risks based on knowledge rather than anything else. Yep. And that was just such a good move. And uh, Gaynor Cody, who was the finance director at the time, who would go on to become joint chief executive with me, um, she was really hot on the idea that, okay, we've got a long way on transparency. Let's just keep going there. And one of the civil servants at the Millennium Commission had said, to understand civil servants, you need to know, if you're honest with them, they can deal with any amount of terrible information. That is their talent. If you lie to them, they are exposed in front of their minister. So there's your theme of trust coming through again. Trust is absolutely valid. Don't hide anything. And we, yep. we were really well looked after yep. by the commission. They were great. And so, so you had you felt you had to set it up as a charity, despite yeah. your misgivings. Yeah, and because we had that early. way you could access funds. Was it also about the brand as well of the project and and, the, and something about the public trusting it? And was, uh, was the, did that come into? No, that's post hoc rationalisation. That's not how I felt. It mm. was pure pragmatism at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did feel that the end product should belong to the nation. But there again, the Lost Gardens of Heligan, which belonged to me in terms of the, 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 the business and everything else, I no longer feel as if I own it because we've got so many members and so many people for whom it's important. We've had over 400 people um, have their ashes scattered there. Wow. So every small change you make, people say... And I love that. I love the fact that you're a steward of something. And I always wanted to be a steward of Eden. And that's how it's become, because I think the truth is that, that especially men tell their history backwards with full of fibs, because, <laughs> well, because they cannot believe the random nature of their life, and they want it to look as if everything had an intention. You know, that's kind of like the masculine thing, I think. Um, whereas I think women are far more you, prepared to take chaos and it's... Or do you think it's a founder thing? Do you think it's a... a I don't know, when you ask, any, you ask any man about the story of their life and they will make it look logical... Well, yours is sounding pretty logical. It sounds like this key theme was coming all the way through from when you were well, yeah, very yeah, little kid. I, I suppose but where I ended up wasn't logical. I mean, it wasn't logical to become an archaeologist, anthropologist and end up running two big botanical things. Logic, serendipity or sheer founder spirit? 
here, dear listener, we pause Tim's amazing story. Listen to episode eight to find out more and to hear about how Tim builds Eden, engages the local community, deals with tough times, inspires his staff and board, and then moves on to developing new international projects. Thanks for listening to Social Founder Stories. I'll really look forward to your feedback. You can follow us on Twitter at Social Founders. And of course, if you are a social founder, or even thinking of becoming one, let me know. Social Founder Stories is brought to you in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at kiva.org.uk. Thank you.